Hey, good morning, everybody. We're going to continue our um, series this morning in Philippians, Book of Philippians, and we'll be in Philippians chapter 1 and verse number 27 is where we're going to begin. And uh, so if you've got a Bible or a Bible app, if you want to turn there with us, and while you're doing that, let's... um. Uh, uh, um I'll just give you a bit of background to this story because there's a few things we need to know. So way back in Acts chapter 5, the disciples get arrested um, for sharing the good news about Jesus, and they are thrown into a prison. And it's an amazing story where an angel in the middle of the night comes and breaks them out. And the angel tells them, go to the temple and give the people this message of life. And so they go and do that, and uh, they get arrested again. And they're taken before the council, uh, the, the Sanhedrin council, and the, uh, it's kind of a religious council, and the religious council uh, really wants to um, execute them. Uh, anyway, they, they change their mind about that, but they give them a serious beating, like a really serious beating. And uh, the disciples walk out of that meeting, uh, and it says this in Acts 5.41, really, really strange verse. It says, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer. Whoa, you know, kind of weird, isn't it? A weird statement. And, uh, you know, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer. And uh, we usually explain that by saying, well, you know, Christians have this kind of underlying joy that, that is there despite our circumstances. And uh, while I think that's true, I think there's a little bit more going on here. So if you imagine a scenario, however this would happen, if God was to come to you and say, I have a very important mission that I need done. And I want you to lead a team. Uh, this, this mission has multiple goals. Uh, many people are going to come to the saving knowledge uh, of, of um, Jesus Christ. Uh, they're going to connect with me because of this. This is going to have huge impact. It's a very, very important mission. However, there's a catch here. In order to, for this mission to achieve its mission goals, it's going to require that the members of you, you and the members of your team uh, be arrested uh, and severely beaten in a prison. You can have anyone you want. Pick your team. Who are you going to pick? Interesting question, isn't it? And you start thinking maybe some names are popping into your head, uh, and then there's some names popping in your head and thinking, yeah, no, not him. No, not her. All right? And you start thinking, you know, who could handle a mission like that, right? Arrested and beaten, you know. Would you would you choose a new Christian? You might, but they'd have to be pretty, you know, gung ho for the cause of Christ. You know, they'd have to be really on fire because, you know, being arrested and, and having a severe beating that's that's pretty serious. And you know, a lot of people are going to go. You know what? I, I didn't sign up for this. <laughs> you know, I got I got a family, or you know, I got a future ahead of me, or whatever, right? Um, and a lot of people, you know, would walk away after something like that. So, who would you choose? Put on your team. Well, I think this is, this is what the, the disciples connected with here is that they realized that they didn't choose that team. God chose that team, and God had picked them to be on that team. And um, knowing how tough it was going to be, he, they were the hand-picked team. Uh, and I think that's what the, you know, they rejoiced. that They were counted worthy uh, to suffer, that, that God went, you know what, this is the person I want on this team um, to do this difficult mission. Um, because they will stick with me and they will carry it out. Wow. Okay, so fast forward several years, and uh, the Apostle Paul comes to the city of Philippi in Eastern Europe. And uh, it's kind of a weird city. It's a, It was a Roman city, a Roman colony. A lot of uh, Roman generals and, and top military brass had, uh, had retired there. 
Uh, and so it was kind of this Roman city sitting in the middle of the Greek world. Right, the Greek-speaking world, you've got this Roman city, just kind of out of place, a bit like Gibraltar, you know, kind of an ancient version of Gibraltar. If you think about Gibraltar, it's kind of weird. You've got this British city on the end of Spain, you know, it's like, you know, it's just kind of weird. And so um, Philippi was that kind of thing. And uh, under Roman law, it was illegal for uh, to try and convert someone to serve a foreign god, right? And the reason for that was the people believed that if – if someone was disrespectful to a Roman god or a couple of people were disrespectful to a Roman god, that Roman god might punish the entire city for that. Uh, and so there was a lot of, you know, sort of superstition about that. And, um, and so they, um, uh, they made it illegal. And um, so Paul and Silas are in there and they, they, they're sharing the good news about Jesus Christ and they get arrested and a bunch of things happen and um, they end up arrested and they, they're dragged before the magistrates. And in Roman colonies, um, magistrates were appointed in pairs, usually for a limited period of time. Uh, and um, so they go before these magistrates, and without giving them a trial, the uh, the magistrates order them to be severely beaten with batons, right? And it's really easy to kind of underplay these things. Oh, you know, they were beaten, and then they went here, and you know, whatever. But this is, you know, without getting graphic and stuff, this is a blood on the floor kind of kind of beating, right? So um, this happens, and then they're thrown into the maximum security wing of Philippi prison and uh, Paul and Silas are in there and they're, they're praying and they're, they're singing hymns to God. All right. And uh, uh, there it is again, right. You know, rejoicing that they were counted worthy, you know? Um, and again, almost, you know, history repeating miraculously um, um, the prison breaks open. And, but this time everybody is kind of so awestruck by this that nobody goes anywhere, right? They all stay there. And you can read this. This is in Acts chapter 16. You can read it another time. But, um, you know, the prison warden and his family end up getting saved. And and uh, the next day, as word of this um, gets around, the magistrates send a message to, to the prison saying, let Paul and Silas go free. And Paul is like, hang on a minute. <laughs> hang on a minute. No, 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 no. You beat Roman citizens without a fair trial. Now, Rome took this right to a trial very, very seriously, right? And um, um, if word got back to Rome about this, that, that Roman citizens were, were beaten without a trial, the magistrates would almost definitely lose their jobs, right? Um, and they might go to prison, and uh, they possibly even could be executed. This is how seriously this was taken. So imagine this, you know, if you if you're Paul and Silas, and your rights have been violated like this, right? I mean, you've been you've feared for your life. They he, they had the crowd beat them publicly, right? Um, uh, and they really didn't know what was going to happen, whether they were going to live or die. Uh, and uh, you were seriously beaten, and you feared for your life, and then you're thrown in maximum security prison. What would you want? You know, I I would want at least to see these guys lose their jobs. You know, at the very minimum, right? Um, but Paul and Silas didn't execute their rights as citizens. They didn't uh, exercise their rights as citizens. Paul said, send them a message to the magistrates, and he said, how about you two come down here and let us out? And then they left. Why would they do that, right? Why would they do that? Um, why wouldn't they exercise their rights as, as citizens? Because there was this little church in Philippi uh, meeting in the house of an Asian lady named Lydia. 
And, uh, and so long as Paul had the ability to, to send a message back to Rome about what these magistrates had done, uh, they were going to be very nervous and uh, they weren't likely to harass any, any members uh, of that church during their term in office. Right? Makes sense? Yeah. So um, uh, fast forward many years from there, uh, Paul's now in Rome uh, and he's in prison again and he's, he's waiting for a hearing to determine whether or not they're going to execute him. Or, or let him go. And those Philippian magistrates are long gone, and the church of Philippi is now under pretty serious persecution, and Paul, Paul writes in this letter, right? And so we're going to pick it up in uh, verse number 27 of chapter 1. And Paul says this to them. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Uh, so in the Greek language there, the, the phrase translated manner of life, literally the, the, it means live like a citizen. Right? Live like a citizen. And um, remember, Philippi is a city full of Roman citizens who are very proud of that, right? In a, in a Greek, you know, in a region full of Greeks. And, and they lived very differently to the people around them. And so, you know, they would very quickly pick up on this statement that Paul made. He's saying, look, you're citizens of God's kingdom because of the good news of Jesus Christ. So live your lives that way, right? Look different to the people around you, right? Uh, he carries on, verse 27. So that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, right? In other words, you know, whether he gets out of prison or not, you know, uh, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. Um, you know, basically you all have the same attitude, right? With one mind, right, or one sense of purpose, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Okay, what, what does that mean, faith of the gospel? It means you've trusted in this good news that, that Jesus rose from the dead and you've accepted his forgiveness. So you understand that death is not an end point, right? And um, when you don't see death as an end point, life looks very, very different, right? Isn't that right? You know, if death's not an end point, how you look at it, how you look at things and how you live is going to be completely different. Look at what he says in verse number 28. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. And, and like um, Peter um, showed us last week, um, either Paul was going to get out of prison or they would kill him and he'd go to be with Jesus, right? Either way, that's a rescue in, in the way Paul kind of looked at it. Like, like I say, if you, if you don't see death as an endpoint, things, things look different, right? So uh, he says, you know, look, don't be intimidated when things get rough. And people want to understand that, right? Um, and, and that'll make them wonder whether maybe you might be onto something. So um, verse number 29, he says this, and this is where it gets, gets difficult. He says, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now you hear that I still have. He says, look, you know, you guys, you watch me go through this in Philippi, and you've heard that I'm going through, you know, a similar thing right now in Rome. Verse 29 there, again, really has this idea that, you know, God has found you guys worthy enough that he picked you for a really tough mission. Yeah. Um, and um, so uh, verse uh, chapter 2 goes on chapter 2, verse 1. So, right, therefore, because of all this, the stuff you know, 
He says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, and we need to kind of um, explain this a little bit. Um, you know, Paul loves this church. He really loves this church. And, and he acknowledges, again, the many great things that are happening uh, in Philippi Church. Um, and it, it's important we understand what he's saying here because the language he uses is very important. You see at the beginning there it says, you know, if there is any encouragement. Uh, the, the Greek translation of that word actually appears four times in one verse. And, and it's said as an assumption. Right, and it's an assumption. It's so it's kind of rhetorical questions, you know, questions that are uh, that are really statements that are posed in in the form of a question. Uh, and so what he's what he's trying to say here is um, he's saying, look, I, I'm assuming that these things are present in in your congregation, right? So he's saying, uh, I'm assuming there's encouragement in Christ. I'm assuming that you have comfort, comfort from love. I'm assuming that there's participation in the spirit. Um, I, I assume that there's affection and, and sympathy. Um, and, and he says, look, you know, you have all these amazing things. And because you have all of these amazing things going on, you have what it takes to do what I'm asking you to do. Right? In verse number two, he defines that. Complete my joy. Complete my joy. You know, Paul says, look, my joy is not quite complete. Um, and they're thinking, well, what can we do? You know, what are we lacking? What can we do to make your joy complete, Paul? You know, um, uh, and um, he, he tells them, verse number two, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He says, look, you've got to have the same attitude. You've got to be on the same page, the, the same mind, the same love, and full accord. And then he says it again, of one mind, right, single, single of purpose, right? Um, in other words, he says, the thing that you lack, and this is what, what would make my joy complete, is you need to be unified in terms of how you think and how you act. Right? Unity in the church is so important that, that before Jesus goes to the cross, he prays to the Father, and, and it's that moment um, where he prays for future believers. And in that moment, um, he's actually praying for um, for you and for me, right? Because he, he's, he's praying for Hukunui Church. He's praying for all the people um, who are going to place their faith, faith in him. Right? And he, he asks something of the Father. You know, this is in uh, John 17. So of all the things that he could ask the Father for, uh, What's, you know, what's the one thing that he would ask just before he goes back? Um, and, and in John chapter 17, he says, I, do, I, don't ask, I do not ask only for these only. Right? He says, I'm not just asking for the people that are in my presence right now. He says, but I'm going to make a request for those who will believe in me through their word. Right? So they're going to spread the message of Jesus. Uh, they're going to tell people and those people are going to tell people. Uh, and then that's going to happen down through the generations, right? And we're here today because these, these early believers um, were sharing their faith, right? We stand in that line. And Jesus says, you know, I'm, I'm praying for these future believers, uh, and here's what I'm asking. Here's what he says, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. So the example that Jesus, um, the example of unity that Jesus gives here, is the unity that He has with the Father, right? 
there couldn't be any greater unity than that, right? Um, he says, you know, the, the relationship that I have with the Father, that's what I want for the people that follow me. That's what I want to see in my churches, right? I want them to be unified, right? Why? He tells us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Hmm. Our unity sends a very, very powerful message out into the world, and the message is this. Jesus is who he said he was, right? He is who he said he was. Um, just look at his followers. Just look how diverse they are, how different they are, and yet in the midst of all that diversity, look at their unity, right? Um, it's interesting, you know, the Bible says that Christians were, uh, you know, the the, uh, the believers were first called Christians at Antioch. And Antioch in its day was probably one of the most diverse cities in the world. Um, and the text actually, you know, they give us some names of the people that were in the leadership team there at Antioch. And um, and from these names, we understand that there was people from all kinds of different races, different backgrounds, different socioeconomic groups, uh, all of that. And they're all coming together. And there wasn't really a kind of a word to describe that, right, what people saw in this group. And, you know, we think racism is bad in our time, but, man, in the in, back in the first century, yeah, um, it, it was just really bad and it was everywhere, right? Um, and uh, and so people are looking at this unity of people all from, you know, different um, different races and different backgrounds and, and uh, you know, like I say, different economic backgrounds and socioeconomic, you know, um, upbringings and, and all of that, and, and they're saying, what, what is this? You know, how is this happening? This just doesn't happen anywhere else, right? And um, and, and this is the first place where they're called Christian because that was kind of the only way for them to describe, um, you know, what these people had in common, what it was that brought their unity, right? Jesus Christ. They were, they were Christians, like, you know. Uh, and so you know, in these first centuries, churches, if somebody had a need, somebody would say, well, you know, so-and-so really need, has this real serious need, somebody would go, well, you know, I've got something I can sell. I'll sell that and we'll get some money and we'll, we'll meet that need. And that's kind of how they behave, right? Wow, right? Amazing stuff. Um, so how do we mirror that as a church community? How, how do we mirror that? Uh, how do we act like that? Uh, Paul tells us in, in the next few verses, chapter 2, uh, verses three and four, he says, "Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in uh, all humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you not look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others." So Paul is laying down a very simple but very profound principle, and it's this: unity is brought about through humility. Right? Let me say that again. Unity is brought about through humility. Um, so case in point, let, let's bring it home, right? Um, think about the last heated argument that you had with someone um, where um, you had a disagreement, let's say, with a family member and you were wrong. You were just wrong, right? And you, you, um, you just didn't want to admit it, right? Um, and... Uh, um, you just didn't want to say, yeah, that was a mistake. I, I, I was wrong on that, right? Um, how is that relationship going? <laughs> yeah? How's that relationship going, right? When, when uh, see, there can't really be true unity until there's humility, right? Until we can say, look, 
I, I just need to say that I was wrong. I'm really sorry. What I did wasn't right. My attitude was completely misguided and it's destructive. I'm just sorry. I'm really sorry, right? Because when we when we adopt a humble posture, it's like throwing gas on the flames of unity, right? Um, there can't really be reconciliation until there's, there's true humility. A lot of times we think of humility as, as kind of being this person who, who sort of walks around and then they're like, you know, I'm, I'm just kind of a nobody. I don't really count. You know, I'm, I'm the scum of the earth, actually. You know, I, I, just, I just don't matter. Um, everyone's better than me, you know. That's actually not humility. That's self-loathing. Loathing. Self-loathing. That's hard to say. Um, and uh, um, one of the Greek words that's often translated um, as humility refers to a bridled horse. Right? That's kind of weird. But if you think about a horse, like a really powerful stallion, right, got all that just, you know, power and, 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 and um, just full on. And then it's bridled, right? It's, it's, it's power under control. It's power under control. That's humility. That's, that's humility. Humility is not thinking less about yourself. Humility is thinking about yourself less, right? Um, um, think about the time, you know, Satan tempted Adam and Eve in the garden. He, you know, he appealed to their pride. He said, look, you know, God's holding out on you. The reason you're not allowed to eat that fruit is because God knows you'll be as smart as him. If you that, you know, I don't think you can really trust him. I think you need to eat that and find out, right? He just appealed to their pride. You know, you're worth more than this, you know. Um, you know, in every church, there are two kinds of people. There's the person, the first person walks in and he says, or she says, here I am. I'm so ready for you to serve me. Right. The second type of person comes in and says, There you are. How can I serve you? Right. Tell me which one of those makes for a healthy church. Yeah. Pretty obvious, eh? Pretty obvious. Um, we often think about how we can get gain the attention of other people. Um, it, it's interesting if you watch when my kids were little, they played T ball. And, you know, they, they put the tea there and the, the ball's on it. And before they do their big hit, they look around to see where mum and dad are, right, or whoever other relatives are there or, you know, friends, whatever, and see. And then they do their big hit. And even before they run, they look around again to see if everyone saw their big hit, right? And then they go. It's pretty pretty funny to watch, All right? And so when we get older, we don't do that so much. It comes out in different ways. Like we're not running around yelling, hey, look at me, watch this, you know, Um but we're projecting, hey, everybody, look at me and what I purchase. Yeah. Hey, look at me and, and notice what I project through social media. Because right? a lot of times that, that's about image control, you know, very often. Uh, and it sort of creates this fantasy land where, where we're trying to say, hey, you want my life. Right. Um, and, and that's kind of how that goes. It's all about attention. So it's really easy to achieve pride because it just comes naturally. Right, being humble is kind of counterintuitive, and and it's actually countercultural as well. You know, if you watch Instagram, yeah, but being humble is is countercultural, and you and I are going to have to to fight what's inside of us naturally in order to obtain a humble posture. And so Paul says, you know, let let each of you regard others as more important than himself. Um, Paul was writing this to a church, not just to an individual, and, and this would have been read in front of the entire con congregation, right? And so Paul understands that um, nothing destroys a church from within like an arrogant and proud attitude, right? Um, you know, every good thing we have comes from God, 
Imagine a kite, right? And this kite is all smashed up. It's got broken sticks and it's got a big tear in it and stuff. And it's never going to fly. But a big cyclone comes in, right? Now it's going to fly, right? And imagine, you know, the, the kite just flies. The cyclone picks it up and it just flies for miles. And someone interviews the kite after that. And the kite goes, man, do you see how amazing I was? Did you see how far and how fast I flew? I am incredible, right? And we go, yeah, you're kind of leaving out a big part of the picture here, right? Um, that's kind of minimizing the source of the flight. Right? And yet, you know, as Christians, we do that all the time, don't we? We, we, uh, we start giving ourselves credit um, when, in fact, every good thing we have comes from God. So Paul says to the Philippians, make my joy complete. You have all these wonderful things in your congregation, you know, I sense the love. I sense the the affection. But if you let pride um, sneak in, and you let arrogance sneak into the congregation, there, that thing will be your undoing. So make my joy complete. Proud people only care about themselves, right? Humble people care about others. Now, if I'm just worrying about my own needs, I'm just worrying about myself, and I just care about myself, then there's just me caring about myself, right? But if I'm caring about everybody else and everybody else is caring about me, then I have multiple people caring about me, right? So this is, under the system, we're actually all better off. Right? Um, this is five and six, and we'll finish. This is, this is quick. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. All right, remember... Paul and Silas gave up their individual rights to get justice. Now, why did they do that? Because they looked at what would be the best option for everybody else. They looked at that little fledgling church there in Philippi and went, if we leave this alone, these guys will get left alone right, and have a chance to grow. Um, they looked at what was the best option for everybody else. Now, where did they get that idea? Right? Jesus modeled it. Right, his humility led him all the way to the cross. You know, we look at that, look at that next week. But um, he told us to remember his sacrifice, and he didn't make his sacrifice about himself. But he literally says, "This was done for you." Right, um, and if you remember, you know, when they came to arrest him, um, the, the Roman garrison arrives in the middle of the night, and they say, "We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Are you him?" And he says, "I am." And when he says, "I am," the whole garrison falls over backwards. Right, he was God. If he didn't go voluntarily, they were not going to be able to take him. Right, but he gave up his personal rights as God. Think about that for a minute. Right, he gave up his personal rights as God. He didn't grasp onto them, and he humbled himself for our benefit. Right, and that's the model that Paul and Silas followed, and that's the model that Paul's encouraging the church family at Philippi and, and, and those at Hukunui and, and, you know, to follow. Because when a group of people look like Jesus, there's something very, very attractive about that. Humility is the key to unity, and people notice unity. People notice unity. All right, let's pray, and we'll finish up.
Hey, Father, thank you for, um, um, you know, these really wise words that Paul wrote to this church family so long ago, and they just so much um, work. You know, your word just still works. Um, these these patterns for life, um, patterning our lives after Jesus, just makes life better and makes us better at life. And and um, and we thank you for that, Lord. We thank you so much for um the opportunity to uh, get into it and study these things and, and be changed by it. Uh, Lord, we just pray for um, the country right now and, and, in fact, the world and um, the whole coronavirus thing. But we just pray for uh, for us in lockdown and pray for those who are really struggling and those who particularly, you know, have lost jobs and things like that. And we um, just bring them before you this morning. Lord, um, thank you for your love and your grace and thank you for the humility that Christ showed in order to by our salvation. Um, help us to, uh, to also have that same humility. We just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.